The voices today are designed to tear women away from God's best and get them to focus on a career and be able to buy more stuff and pamper themselves. And being a mom is not a glamorous thing. Let me just say that's all a lie, ma'am. That's drivel. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The hand that rocks a cradle still rules the world. And there is nothing more important than that hand that rocks a cradle. So here you have this subject of the investment of mothers. And you find the story here so well told, and it unfolds here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's take a look at it here. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn back to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. And in your mind's eye, I want you to go back to the time of Moses, about 1500 B.C. And as the promised land is conquered through Joshua, you've got following that a period of a few hundred years known as the period of the Judges. It lasts from about 1420 up to about 1100 B.C. And that brings us to the end of the period of the Judges. And there's a, a transitional man who's very, very important as, as Israel transitions from Judges to Kings. He's the pivot man. And his name is Samuel. And we're going to learn something about Samuel and his birth, but more importantly about his parents and especially his mother today as we talk about the investment of a mother. The investment of a mother. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to read quite a bit. Let's start in verse 1. It says, Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to her sons and to her daughter's portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb, and her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, and therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved. But her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? 
put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord." We're going to be talking today about the investment of a mother, but let's pray first, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you now for this precious passage. We pray now that it would speak to our hearts. We pray now that we could elevate in some way womanhood and motherhood and that you would bless now our moms here and those listening. Father, we thank you for Christian moms around this world, present and past and future, and ask you now to help them to fulfill their role, their God-ordained role that thou hast given unto them. We pray now and ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Back in 1908, there was a lady by the name of Miss Anna Jarvis. Her mother had passed away, and she especially loved her mother and wanted to honor her in some way. So she began lobbying for a, a, a holiday, a national holiday to honor mothers. Well, it took six years, but in 1914, the Congress and Woodrow Wilson, the president, made it official, and we now have this thing called Mother's Day. You know, 14 years following that, in 1928, a man by the name of, of William Caldwell wrote the following. He said, Well, may we pause to pay honor to her who, after Jesus Christ, is God's best gift to men, mother. It was she who shared her life with us when as yet our members were unformed. Into the valley of the shadow of death she walked that we might have the light of life. In her arms was the garner of our food and the soft couch for our repose. There we nestled in the hour of pain. There was the playground of our infant glee. Those same arms later became our refuge and stronghold. It was she who taught our baby feet to go and lifted us up over the rough places. Her blessed hands plied the needle by day and by night to make our clothes. She put the book under our arm and started us off for school. But best of all, she taught our baby lips to lisp the name of Jesus and told us first the wondrous story of a Savior's love. Isn't that beautiful? Now that was 88 years ago when that was written. Quite a bit has changed since then. The family has changed. In fact, when I was born in 1960, um, pretty much every, every woman on the block stayed home as a mom and, and kept care of the house and raised the children and occasionally had coffee with the neighbor lady. And up and down the street, I knew the name of every family. I knew the name of every mom. It was just the way it was back then. But you know, the family, the very expression, the very definition has been redefined. And the days of it being a husband and a wife and boys and girls, you know, as children, are pretty much gone now. In fact, even the White House Conference on Family, on the Family, has now redefined itself and changed its very title to the White House Conference on Families, meaning there are 
many definitions now for what constitutes a family. So the family is changing, at least to society, not to God. And roles have changed. The, the role of the husband, the role of the wife. In fact, I mentioned the traditional family. Only 7% of families today would be what we would call the traditional family, with dad as the breadwinner and mom as the homemaker. And by the way, 1 in 12 children today is a battered child. You know, many have foregone even having kids and, and raising kids, and it's getting less um, politically correct and less in vogue, I guess, all the time. You've got even celebrities that are, are speaking out against it. I read an article this last week along the lines of, of skipping out on traditional marriage and skipping out on traditional parenting and, and focusing more on yourself, ladies, focusing more on your partner. By the way, whatever that partner is, it might not be even a husband anymore, and focusing more on your career. And now you've got these celebrities that are coming out and saying they didn't have any time for motherhood or, or uh, the family, as it were. Rachel Ray said this, I have, dedicate, or I have to dedicate an enormous amount of hours to my work. I barely have time to be a mom to my dog. Dolly Parton said, I'm happy being around other people's kids. Stevie Nicks, the songwriter, singer, said, Do I want to be an artist and songwriter or a wife and mother? Kids change your focus. I don't want to go to PTA meetings. Cameron Diaz said, It's too much work to have kids, to have to be responsible for them. I mean, every day for 18 years. Betty White said, I'm too focused and couldn't have, uh, could have never been able to focus on both my career and children, so I chose career. Now, there were others who weighed in, Oprah and uh, Jennifer Aniston and, and others who had similar uh, opinions, but the Bible says, she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth, and, and the woman who's in it for self, as far as life goes, and uh, having her me time and all that kind of stuff, the Bible says is in pleasure, but dead while she yet liveth. And, and God's plan is different than societies today. And in fact, there are a lot of opinions going around about womanhood or womenhood, but God says in 1 Timothy 5.14, I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house. God says, this is my will. I will that the women marry, bear children, guide the house. And in Titus 2 and verse 4, it mentions the older women. It says that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now, it says a lot of things there. We don't have time to get into it, but it mentions keepers at home. And there are some ladies who want to be anywhere but home. And even some Christian ladies may have bought into the folly of the world. And, and the voices today are designed to tear women away from God's best. God's best. And get them to focus on a career and be able to buy more stuff and pamper themselves. And, and, the, and being a mom is not a glamorous thing. Let me just say that's all a lie, ma'am. That's drivel. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The hand that rocks a cradle still rules the world. And there is nothing more important than that hand that rocks a cradle. And William Caldwell also had this to say, and I love this. He said, no nation is greater than its mothers, for they are the makers of men. Isn't that the truth? 
Ma'am, you are the maker of the world's shakers and movers, the leaders, the men, the women of the future. And, and the Bible is full of moms that took their role seriously. And like Sarah, who was faithful and obedient. Like Rachel, who actually even died in childbirth and in labor. Of Jochebed, the mother of Moses. What a job she did. Of Ruth, who was the mother of Obed and the grandmother of Jesse and the great-grandmother of David. What a job she did. How about Elizabeth? Imagine raising the greatest prophet of all time, John the Baptist. That was Elizabeth. And, of course, Mary, the mother of our Savior. So here you have this subject of the investment of mothers. And you find the story here so well told, and it unfolds here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's take a look at it here. We see, first of all, what I call a godly environment. A godly environment. This was a vulnerable time in the nation of Israel's history. And Elkanah and Hannah provided a godly environment for little Samuel. You know, this is an ungodly society in which we live in, in this day and age. It's hard today to maintain a Christian home. But you know, it was just as bad back then. In fact, we read in those days, Judges 21-25 closes by saying, In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It's come to that as a nation, hasn't it? Boy, we're just kind of rewriting our own rules and, and taking our polls and, and, and gaining our opinions off our polls. We're surveying each other. It's a circular reasoning. It's, it's seri- uh, uh, silly, but, but it's being taken serious. And we are continually going downhill morally, and every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. And there's moral debauchery, and there was then as well. It was a time of confusion. It was a time of turmoil. Those days were a time of the Philistines looking over and breathing down the neck of the Jewish people. The priesthood was corrupt. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas were, were laying with the women who had come to the door, and Eli, their dad, was basically slapping them on the wrist for it. And the nation was weak, was weak. And sadly, as you look in chapter 3, notice in verse 1, It says, The child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. You know what that means? It means heaven was quiet and had been for some time. Heaven was perturbed. God didn't like what was going on down there. And so Israel needed a great man, and it needed a a great mother to raise that great man. Samuel, I think, is one of the greatest men we find in the Bible. There are men, and boy, their names are household words, but they had some flaws. Abraham had some flaws, didn't he? He dipped in faith. That great man of faith still denied his wife, was his wife a couple of times, and uh, said, claim you're my sister, and there were other things Abraham did. Of course, David, mentioned more than any man in the Bible next to Jesus Christ, had his flaws, didn't he? But uh, he was still a good man. Peter was a good man, but boy, Peter made a lot of mistakes. But let me just say this about Samuel. You'd be hard-pressed to find much wrong with the man. In fact, he's used in his example of faithfulness even during the Old Testament times. In Jeremiah 15, 1, Jeremiah says, Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. God said, I'm about to judge him. And Jeremiah is saying, Wait! Uh, and trying to intercede. And God picks out two of the greatest intercessors of all time. And Samuel's one of them. And he said, Even if Samuel came to bat for him, I wouldn't listen. 
We find the psalmist say this in Psalm 99.6, Moses and Aaron among the priests and Samuel among them that call upon His name. They called upon the Lord and He answered them. And boy, did He ever. Samuel's a guy who could call down rain, who could call down wind and thunder and, and storms. He was a powerful man of God, a man of prayer. And they're still talking about him even over in the New Testament. In Acts 3.24, the apostle says, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. The days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Samuel prophesied of that. Samuel's mentioned in Hebrews Hall of Faith. You had to be somebody to make it into the who's who of Hebrews Hall of Faith. But in Hebrews 11.32, the prophet says, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, he mentions others, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Samuel is a great man. Now, how did it all start? Well, we find here it started with the investment of a mother. It begins in verse 1 here. It mentions this man, Elkanah, who's the son of this one, the son of that one. In verse 2, it says, And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. We find here that she is a woman who is close to her husband. There is a godly environment, at least to a point. Notice in verse number 8, it says, Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Evidently, he had been. He had been very good to his wife. They had a good relationship. And by the way, the primary relationship of any home for the kids to turn out needs to not be good so much between the parents and kids, though it does need to be good, but it needs to be good between the husband and the wife. And we often focus on, well, you know, uh, we'll be close to our kids and they'll turn out. But mom and dad need to be close together quite often before the kids turn out. I've heard people and, and, and they have talked about how they love their kids, but boy, they don't care for their spouse. There's something bad wrong with that picture. More than anything, I think kids need to know that mom and dad are right with each other. They are close to each other. The kids are watching mom and dad. They know if we have a good relationship. If that closeness is not there between mom and dad, there's an insecurity in the home. And I'll guarantee you the kids pick up on it. And when it's tense between mom and dad, Junior and Junioretta are insecure about their standing. But when mom and dad are close, there's that advantage there for the kids to turn out. Now, some gal would say, but my husband, boy, he, he's not perfect. Well, Elkanah was not perfect. Did you notice something when we read it a moment ago? He had two wives. Elkanah was a polygamist. Ma'am, would you be okay with that? <laughs> you know, if your, if your husband had another wife, I mean, would, okay. No, you wouldn't want that rivalry. And so my point is, here's, here's this husband and wife, and in spite of the fact her husband was not perfect, he was still better to her than ten sons. You know, let me just say this about polygamy. It's not God's plan. I've got to say this. 
It goes way back to Adam and Eve. There's one meant for each other. And, and uh, polygamy was a cultural thing at that time. You go to the mission field and you still find it in places in the world today. But it's, it's never been God's perfect will. And, and Elkanah was not perfect. My point is, they were still close as husband and wife. They still had this relationship. Elkanah is trying to cheer up his wife Hannah. In fact, we find they worship together. In verse 3, it says, And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Notice that he would take his wife to worship up at Shiloh. That was before the days of Jerusalem. There were three feasts particularly that they would go yearly to the, t- the uh, tabernacle at that time to worship for. There were also synagogues and local places of worship. But here's Elkanah, and my point is, he was spiritual. There was a godly environment. It had a godly dad. In fact, Elkanah was spiritual at a time when the very high priest himself, his boss, was not spiritual. And those even above Elkanah, Hophni and Phinehas, were actually wicked But Hannah had a spiritual husband. Not a perfect husband, but a spiritual husband. Sir, are you a spiritual husband? Am I a spiritual husband? Do our wives know that they have spiritual husbands? May I say to the aspiring young ladies here who might be single yet but looking to get married in time, what you want is a spiritual husband. Forget all the bells and the whistles. You want him to be spiritual That's who you want to seek out. You want somebody who's saved, obviously, and somebody whose eyes are on the Lord, who loves the Lord. Don't ever even consider somebody who's not a born-again Christian. This goes way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7.3, God tells His people, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, the unsaved, Thy daughters thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. I mean, this is pretty black and white. This is pretty basic. We find over in the New Testament, it says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. No mixed marriages, spiritually speaking. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. In fact, in Ephesians 6.4, we find this admonition, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, if dad's not saved, how's that going to happen? Or if mom's not saved, how's that going to happen? If you marry an unsaved person, you only have half the parental team that is saved. Now, let me hasten to say, if you're already married and your spouse is not a born-again Christian, you just pray for them and uh, you ask God, you beg God to save them. But uh, I'm saying, if you're not saved for the sake of the next generation, don't even be shopping amongst the unsaved. You follow me there? Because it's important if you're going to have a godly environment that both parents are saved. And you find here that Elkanah and his wife Hannah are sharing their worship. And and that communicates something to your children. When mom and dad are on the same page spiritually and both worshiping together, that speaks volumes to the kids. Now, there's also this mutual love as husband and wife. We find out in verse number 4, it says, And when the time was that Elkanah offered... He gave to Penina his wife and to her sons and her daughter's portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. 
There's no attempt to hide his love for Hannah here. And that's, this is the mess of polygamy, and that's another whole sermon. But it's obvious that Penina had her issues, the very fact she was provoking Hannah and teasing her and kind of tells where her heart was at. And, of course, Elkanah, he picked up on that. And he loved Hannah, and there was no attempt to hide it. And, and the priests at those times, the Levite at those times, would get to keep part of the offering and take it home and they could have this family feast. And so when it comes to giving out the meat, he's given a, a normal portion to everybody. It comes around to Hannah and he just, he just gobs it on there. And that's what they would do in the Middle East. It was a gesture of an honored guest. And so he's saying to Hannah, I really love you. And she knew she was loved. There's no question about that. By the way, that's important for men to relate to their wives. And us guys, we fail to do that, don't we? We fail in some way to let our wives know that we love them. And in the, in the process, we fail to, to project to them the security that they need, that they are loved. We need to let them know their love. The Bible tells us that in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. How do we do that, guys? Well, we do that through thoughtfulness. We do that through time. We do that through sacrifice and kindness and uh, honor and whatever else it might be. That's how we give our, our wives the love they deserve and the security that they need. Sometimes we think, well, they'll feel secure if I've got this portfolio or, or these annuities and, and these finances in order and the house and the retirement, all that kind of thing. But we really give to our wives security by giving them these other things and letting her know she's the only one and she is loved more than anyone else. She is our best friend. She is our priority in life. We love her even above the kids, guys. I'm not saying don't love your kids, but you ought to love your wife even more. And Elkanah was concerned about Hannah's feelings. And so he got right in there and he tried to encourage her. Notice in verse 6 here, it says in her, Hannah's adversary, that's Penina, also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he, Elkanah, did so year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she, that is Penina, provoked her, Hannah, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? He's sympathetic. And, and he had to be very, very good to her to even claim to be. Aren't I better than ten sons? He was sensitive. He, he was tender. He was, he was thoughtful. And a godly woman, a godly wife, a godly mother grows in the soil of a right relationship with her husband. So we see this godly environment. Secondly, we see this gracious example. Now, Hannah's heart broke. She cannot have children. Why does she want children? What is the motive for having children? That's a good question to ask all of us. Hannah wanted children, and her motive was right, not because it was the thing to do, not because others had them as well, not to meet her own emotional needs of, of being a mother, none of that, but she wanted to have a child to give him back to the Lord. To give them back to God. An extension of herself after she was dead and gone. She wanted that son in the worst way to dedicate him to God and give him to God. Notice in verse 10. It says, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, 
If thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, she's specific, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. She said, give me a son, and I'll give him back to you. I will honor you with him. I will glorify you with him. I will raise him and make him a godly heritage. A gift from God, a gift back to God. She was committed to the investment of motherhood. We find her praying in verse 10. It says, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. That expression, bitterness of soul, means literally in agony, in heaviness. She is agonizing in prayer because only God could answer this prayer. We read in Psalm 62, 8, Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Notice, pour out your heart before Him. That's what Hannah is doing here. There is a tenacity in her praying. She means business. In verse 12 at the beginning, it says, And it came to pass as she continued praying. She didn't give up. She kept praying. She remained in prayer. She poured out her heart. She was in the spirit of prayer. And she realized her total dependency upon God for the answer to this prayer. We read in Psalm 63, 8, the psalmist says, My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. This, this is Hannah. Her soul is following hard after the Lord. She is not giving up. She meant business. In verse 11 again, it says, She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. She makes a vow here. She makes a vow. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 5.4 that when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. She makes a vow. She said, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And she takes for him this Nazarite vow. Maybe you don't understand this, but a Nazarite vow is mentioned back in Numbers chapter 6. And if somebody took a Nazarite vow, they were totally consecrating themselves to God. Nothing else mattered. They didn't cut their hair. They didn't shave. They, they totally were not concerned about appearance. They abstained from all delicacies. And a lot of men would only take them short term for a while. But there are a few men in the Bible. Samson, John the Baptist, Samuel here. They took them for a life. And there were no indulgences and they were not to get preoccupied with anything else. And, and, and Hannah is saying, you give me a son, I'll totally give him back to you. 100% back to you. It's the right reason. Now, in verse 12, it says, And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. She's praying. No words are coming out, but her lips are moving. She's praying in her heart. Verse 13 says, now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she had been drunken. Really? Couldn't he tell the difference between a heartbroken woman and a drunk woman? Is, is he that spiritually thick and dense at this time? Uh, apparently he is. In verse 14, 
And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. What a hypocrite. (laughs) Here he is, not living godly at all, and pointing fingers at her. That's really the way it works, by the way, with hypocrisy. You find somebody pointing fingers at you, there's normally more pointing back at them. And he's pointing out the fact he thinks she's drinking here. What a hypocrite. And in verse number 15, Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. She said, Don't think me a a woman of the devil. That's what Belial is here. And actually she equates drunkenness with devilish behavior. You know, we have a society today that thinks drunkenness is funny. But Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You know, the Bible speaks poorly of alcohol. It has a lot of defenders, but no defense. It it has destroyed more homes and killed more teenagers across our nation's highways. And, you know, for over 35 years, I've never seen the sense in drinking it. I mean, apple juice tastes better and it doesn't perforate arteries and kill brain cells and whatever. I, I guess I have no use for it. Hannah was not that type. We find that Hannah was what we would call a a virtuous woman, like the woman in Proverbs 31, godly and holy. We see this godly environment. We see this gracious example. And finally, we see this great effect, the great effect of all this coming together. In verse 17, Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight, So the woman woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. She ate. She was okay. Why? Because she had faith. She trusted in God. No longer a frustrated woman. In fact, true faith doesn't pray and walk away frustrated or continuing to wring our hands and doubting. We find in Psalm 55 and verse 22, it says, To cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer or allow the righteous to be moved. That's a promise. Cast your burden upon the Lord if you have one here today. We read this in 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. A godly mother will trust God. Will trust God. And in the beginning of verse number 19, it says, And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord. What a beautiful thing this would be. Husband and wife worshiping together, believing God. And in verse 20 it says, Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. She committed the next several years of her life to instilling some godly character in this son and and investing in him as a mother. And there's no higher calling than that. Somebody so well said the greatest altar there is is a mother's knee. Somebody else said if, if kids don't learn about God or learn about the world at their mother's knee, they'll learn about it at some other joint. Isn't that the truth? You know, we find in Deuteronomy 6-7, it says, And thou shalt teach them diligently the, the tenets and statutes of God. Teach them diligently unto thy children and shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. 
Can't you just picture the years, those formidable years where Hannah is doing exactly this with the boy Samuel there? Well, the day came when they brought him to the tabernacle forever. Forever. In the last part of verse number 22, Hannah says, And then will I bring him, Samuel, that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. Verse 24 says, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Here's Hannah. She'd invested those years in that boy at this time. She wasn't, she wasn't interested in, in her personal me time, in her personal pleasure, in her career or her money or things or comfort or any of that. She understood the magnitude of the investment she could make in the future if she raised this son for God, the next generation. And in verse 26, she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord. And for this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. If we had time to look on, we'd read about the, the visits that Hannah would make there to Shiloh and the tabernacle, and she'd bring a little linen ephod for Samuel. He was playing little junior priest and a little Levite there. And Samuel's whole life was dedicated to the Lord because of the investment of a mother. I just want to say, as we wind it up here, ma'am, are you a godly mother? Are you a godly mother? Maybe you're preparing to be a mother. Be a godly one. Maybe you're mentoring a mother-to-be. Mentor her to be a godly one. Gentlemen, create an environment that'll foster soil for a godly mother. Kids, are you godly? Are you honoring your parents? Are you obeying your parents? That's the best gift you could give to them, to be obedient to them. I know mom and dad aren't perfect. Nobody is. Neither are you. But you need to honor and reverence your mom and dad. Oh, how our nation, how our society needs some mothers who will make an investment. I want to close with this. It's entitled uh, Parable for Mothers. It's a tribute to mothers. Listen very carefully. It's written in a parable form. The young mother set her foot on the path of life. Is the way long, she asked. And her guide said, yes, and the way is hard. And you will be old before you reach the end of it. But the end will be better than the beginning. But the young mother was happy. And she would not believe that anything could be better than these years. So she played with her children and gathered flowers for them along the way and bathed them in a clear stream. And the sun shone on them and life was good And the young mother cried, Nothing will ever be lovelier than this. And then night came and storm, and the path was dark, and the children shook with fear and cold, and the mother drew them close and covered them with her mantle. And the children said, Oh, mother, we're not afraid, for you are near, and no harm can come us. And the mother said, This is better than the brightness of day, for I have taught my children courage. And the morning came, and there was a hill ahead. And the children climbed and grew weary, and the mother was weary. But all the time she said to the children, A little patience, and we'll be there. So the children climbed, and when they reached the top, they said, We could not have done it without you, mother. And the mother, when she lay down that night, looked up at the stars and said, This is a better day than the last, 
For my children have learned strength in the face of hardiness. Yesterday I gave them courage. Today I have given them strength. And the next day came strange clouds which darkened the earth, clouds of war and hate and evil. And the children groped and stumbled. And the mother said, Look up! Lift up your eyes to the light. And the children looked and saw above the clouds an everlasting glory. And it guided them and brought them beyond the darkness. And that night, mother talked of Jesus and said, This is the best day of all, for I have shown my children God. And the days went on, and the weeks, and the months, and the years. And the mother grew old, and she was little and bent. But the children were tall and strong, and walked with faith and courage in God. And when the way was rough, they lifted her, for she was as light as a feather now. And at last they came to a hill, and beyond the hill they could see a shining road and golden gates flung wide. And the mother said, I've reached the end of my journey. I, now I know the end is better than the beginning, for my children can walk alone, for they walk with God. And the children said, You will always walk with us, Mother, even when you've gone through the gates to the Savior. And they stood and watched her as she went on alone, and the gates closed behind her. And they said, We cannot see her, but she's still with us. A mother like ours is more than a memory. She is an ongoing, living presence through her children. Mom, it's worth the investment. It's worth it. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.